Welcome to the Creation Grounds Podcast, where we break down the success, habits, and the life of people in creative fields, discover how they've gotten to where they are, what they aspire to be, and how you can live your dreams too. Let's get to the show. So yeah, thanks for coming on the Creation Grounds Podcast. Nice. We'll just... We'll just dig right back, right in with uh, where you come from. So you have a military background, and you traveled a lot as a child, and you eventually settled down in Alaska. Yeah. So is Alaska what you consider home? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think a home is kind of where you know the most about. Um, so I definitely consider Alaska home. But also, you know, Louisiana, I feel like I grew up there a lot. So I'm a southern boy with a northern accent. <laughs> And you found yourself at Howard and then came up to New York. How'd you tell us about your experience in Howard? Oh, it was amazing, man. I had an opportunity to get taught by a lot of the kind of, a lot of the original, well, not original. I would say a lot of the black Broadway performers when, um, you know, when kind of having predominantly African-American shows was very prevalent in New York, you know, in the 70s, 80s. And I think that uh, when that died down, a lot of them took teaching positions at various universities, Howard being one of them. And so I had a lot of, a lot of amazing professors, man, who definitely gave me a really, really good foundation in terms of artistic training. And that was your BFA at Howard, right? Uh Uh-huh. So when did you decide to come to NYU? Uh, I had moved to New York in 2005, and I was just kind of working at various places and um, as a bartender and, uh, and a caterer. And then I got an opportunity to come join the um, – well, I had an opportunity to come audition for the NYU graduate acting program. That year, they had extended the audition process. They didn't find enough um, applicants of color, and so they asked the current students there if they knew anybody that would be good for the program, and my friend – Cornelius Smith Jr., who's now on Scandal uh, and did a, a, a few years on Young and the Restless, I mean, I'm sorry, on All My Children, he suggested me for the program. He was graduating that year. Is he the guy that um, won the ABC Talent um, Showcase? Uh-huh. That name sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he seems like a solid brother. Oh, yeah. Um, so you definitely have put in time with the craft, and you have, you, you know, you're totally dedicated to it. Mm-hmm. So how important is craft to you, and what does that mean to you? You mean like craft in regards to training? Yeah, training. Um, I mean, I think it's important. I think if you want to be proficient at anything, you you have to kind of submerge yourself into it, learn as much about it as you possibly can, and continue to practice it as much as you can. I think you don't necessarily have to go to formal school, but – you know, I think you definitely want to put yourself in a position to be fully submerged in the work, and school did that for me. But for some people, they have a different path, you know. Sometimes they work right away, and work teaches them everything they need to know, kind of OJT, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in terms of – it's kind of hard to measure, like, um, growth as an artist, but what does being an artist mean to you? How do you know – if you're watching a play or you're watching a, a, a film, how do you differentiate, oh, that's an artist right there? Yeah. What What does artistry mean to you? I think, uh, I think I delineate artistic maturity with an actor who is able to, you know, honestly and truthfully communicate 
a whole range of ideas without seeming to necessarily need to move a muscle. Um, so what are your favorite three books? They could be personal books that you really like or books on craft. If somebody just is a total blank slate and doesn't know anything about acting but wants to get into it mm-hmm. or wants to break in or somebody who is experienced and is just struggling, what books do you, would you say would help them? Um, I read a book called The Drama of the Gifted Child once that was uh, really, really eye-opening. Um, it's, a, it's a book that is often used by therapists um, with their patients. It just explores kind of your, your, your makeup as a person as it relates to your childhood. And I think it's huge, you know, kind of everything that we are, being that we are uh, imitation, we learn through imitation. I think a lot of our, the aspects of who we are stem from childhood. And when you begin to explore that, you begin to understand more about yourself and why you do the things you they do. Also, it encourages you to ask more questions to those who raised you and figure sure. out why they did the things that they did, you know. Um, that trickle-down theory is real between generation and generations. Um, another book I read was um, that, that definitely kind of shaped who I am was um, – there's a book called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, and um, that's more of like, I guess it would fall under the self-help book category. I guess both of them would, but that book is, it's a wonderful tool for those who aren't necessarily religious but are interested in spirituality. It kind of gives them a wonderful foundation and a way to think about things in a spiritual way, um, and the writing is extremely uh, truthful and honest and forthright. Um, and honestly, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't say The Color Purple is an amazing novel. <laughs> I only say it that is. because I came to it late in life. I didn't, it wasn't required reading in high school. So I read The Color Purple in preparation to do this play. And it is an absolutely amazing novel. And I also read her first novel. I read all of her books, really. How many does she have, Alice Walker? Well, there's the three that is often kind of grouped with The Color Purple, and then there is her first novel, The Third Life of Grange Copeland, but I'm not exactly sure the full range of her body of work. I just read all of the ones that, you know, that came with The Color Purple, but then, and then our assistant director, Sarita Liu, she suggested that I read her first novel, The Third Life of Grange Copeland. It's kind of the male perspective of um, some congruencies that we see between her male characters in the other books. Wow. Uh-huh. I never even heard of that one. I'm about to check that out. Yeah, most people haven't. I didn't. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're in a dressing room right now yeah. uh, in New York, Times Square, Broadway. Yeah. For anybody dreaming of The Great White Way, what sage advice, because you're a veteran. I mean, this is like your third or fourth Broadway yeah, show fourth, that you're yeah. in. Uh-huh. What would you say to somebody who either has a Broadway credit and wants to continue doing it or somebody who is totally new to the game and wants to be on Broadway? I would say, you know, um, uh, just really just do your best at every single assi- thing that you have to do, be it a school assignment or a free community theater play. 
you know, you just have to be more interested in your work and your the truthfulness of your artistic expression. You have to be much more interested in that than you are just being on Broadway. Being on Broadway is a wonderful goal, but I can tell you that what gets you there is having a very confident, practiced uh, process for finding your personal truth in any piece of text, any song that you have, you know, and that's, that's, that's kind of a lifelong journey to bring yourself to the work. And the more you understand about yourself and the more you are consciously living through your life, you know, relationships, heartbreaks, all of those things, you know, you have to really want to experience the fullness that life has, the good and the bad, in order to really inhabit its lessons and grow from it and, and allow those emotions, thoughts, experiences to add to your work and your imagination. I agree wholeheartedly. So for that first day, if somebody just booked a Broadway show, mm-hmm and they're in the, the meet and greet room. Mm. And you wanna, you know, you're a stranger, you don't know anybody. Mm-hmm. What's the key to coming together as a team or a cast to to really make it pop so you have that camaraderie or community on, on stage? I think definitely just be real, be yourself. Don't put on airs, just breathe in, try to find a comfortable space within yourself. Uh, and greet people with absolute truth, you know. I think it's also good, I mean, strategically, it's also good to kind of know the work of the people in the room. You know, if you haven't seen their work, then I would definitely Google and figure out who they are and what they've done, you know, because I think it's a wonderful talking point. I also think it's just kind of a a nice respect, you know. If it's your first time in the room, you want to know what people have done so that you could at least have a context for the professional experience that's in the room. I think when you're working on a collaboration, it's all about trust. For sure. And a part of building that trust is about being interested in <laughs> things other than yourself. I agree. Mm-hmm. So what's the Color Purple experience been like for you, and what's it been like working with such a group of amazing talent, both on stage and behind the scenes? Mm-hmm. Um, it's been It's been absolutely lovely, man. We don't get an opportunity to kind of sink our teeth into work that is a reflection of our history, our present, our future as an African-American community. And I think that we've all respectfully bowed down to that first and foremost. That's why we come to work every day. That's why we give 120%. I think we respect the opportunity that we have to really live in this story. Um, I think what's amazing about this production is that even though it's a musical, it really feels like a play with music. And I think any time you get an opportunity to really live in the skin of a character for a long time, that's a wonderful gift, you know, whether you have lines or not. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift as an artist to be able to live in the skin of another character for an extended amount of time and to be able to make choices and to make it your own and to fully own it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So eight nights a week. For people that don't know, Broadway artists have to perform eight nights a week. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah, you are performing eight nights a week. Mm-hmm. So what do you do to keep your instrument, your voice, and the connection to the text and keeping it fresh? What do you do? What's your ritual for keeping yourself in tip-top shape? Uh, well, I mean, I think nothing really serves better than rest. you got to sleep, man. you got to <laughs> sleep. You have to yeah. sleep consistently. Um, you gotta get. you got to sleep. It doesn't matter 
how much vocal exercising you're doing, if you don't literally rest your voice uh, in between shows as much as you can, it won't, you know, if, you're, if your body's tired, your voice will also be tired. You can't really force it, you know, and I think the more you force it, the more damage, long-term damage you can do to your vocal cords. Um, I think it's about staying open to current events as like source material for what it is that you're that you're doing mm-hmm. i think that as artists you know we're kind of like sponges you know we are spiritually emotionally intellectually and physically open and at risk to all of the energies in the in the world and i think that you know all of that information from the news and from uh, being connected to your family and friends and their lives and really being concerned about what's going on around you, I think is the artist, I think that's the artist's handbook, really. Because you bring all of that stuff to your work in one way right. or another. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so you have you had any moments where you've just been in complete awe of somebody who's seen your work and you kind of respect them? Because James Earl Jones has actually complimented your work before. Mm-hmm. Do you have any people that that you're like, wow, I'm really humbled, or I really, really appreciate that, moments like that? Yeah, you know, I think it's the encouragement of the people that you work with. I mean, I think that, you know, I learn something from everybody that I work with because in my eyes, you know, there's no, there's no, like, uh, there's no end game. Like, there's no level of achievement in this business, even if you win an Oscar. I mean, it's just like, what does that really mean, though? Yeah. Does that mean that you're an amazing actor? You know, it's mm-hmm. all it's all objective to who's ever watching. And I think that you eventually will be able to let go of the whole idea about being good or not good. And I think every time somebody tells you you're good, in that moment, you're good. <laughs> in all the moments yeah. in between, you might feel like a shitty actor, you know? Yeah. Or all the moments in between, you're just not sure because, you know, I think you to even make this whole thing happen, you need a space, you need a performer, and you've got to have the spectator. It's very true. And I think that the only way that I know I'm good is if I find moments of truth within myself that I say, oh, I felt like this is a truthful moment. Thank you so much. I feel like this is a truthful moment for me, and that's something that I don't need a spectator to tell me if it was good or not because it felt truthful to me, and that's all that really matters. So the challenge that lies before every actor is to come to the table and find as much truth moment to moment as you possibly can. It's almost impossible, and I think that's why we keep doing it. So tell us a little bit about your creation of Mr. Do you change? So I feel like every actor has a certain toolbox. They draw from different things that they need for certain characters. Do you have a certain technique or or research habit to create a character? What's your process of creating a character? Mm. I think it's different based on what, whatever it is that I'm doing. I think because this play is steeped in history, I definitely did my due diligence dramaturgically with mm-hmm. the novel and history of this time period. And, uh, you know, and, and being well-versed in um, the Alice Walker's point of view about her characters you know and how she expresses them I think uh, and then you bring your own 
your own personal history to the work, to this work specifically. Um, and so I don't necessarily have any kind of rules of thumb or habits. I think that I try to be open to whatever's happening in the moment. You know, I always thought about the whole toolbox thing, and they, they told me that in undergrad, but then in grad school, I was exposed to some folks who didn't necessarily think that there is a such thing as a toolbox, that they say, like, your tools, you can, the only tools that you have to use are what's given to you in the moment by the person you're working with and by the circumstance. And so my job as an actor is to be extremely open and available to whatever that is and really train yourself to be a really good listener because the moment yes. will tell you how to handle it. The moment will tell you how to say your line. If you're really listening, the rhythm of how the line is said before will tell you how you should say your line or, you know, or the rhythm of the storytelling as a whole, the rhythm of the way that the story is being told will dictate everything. So... You know, I think as far as the toolbox goes, I think that serves you for a time, and then you realize, damn, this toolbox ain't working for me anymore. <laughs> yeah. And you either need to get some new tools or say the hell with the box altogether. Okay. So you let's 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 talk a little bit about the interests and hobbies that you have because you have an interest in education you have an interest mm -hmm. in teaching mm -hmm. so tell us a little bit about the work you want to do for the community if that's something you're doing currently or something that you want to do long term um, sometime in the future tell us about your goals and dreams for that absolutely I teach as much as I can now on my days off on days that I have shows anytime I get called into substitute if I can work it out I will definitely go teach I think it just keeps your keeps your tools sharp, and you learn so much from actors who are young and hungry and eyes open and really trying to like understand some things about the craft. You learn a lot, and it's humbling to to be in that room and space. That's why I love it. I think to start a charter school, K through 12, arts and education approach to learning um, right now, looking to call it the Freedom School of Learning and Development, and we really want to look at kind of a holistic um, approach to learning, you know, really trying to use all of the uh, multiple intelligencies to help kids find the way that they learn individually, you know. I mean, the hope is to be able to provide this service and actually have it affect the way that kids are being taught in the public school system, you know. But I think that we have, that that's like a whole thing, right? It's like, Africa, the continent of Africa has, you know, they, they inhabit something like 70% of the world's resources come out of that country. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then, you know, I think China takes those resources and they create new technology with those resources. <laughs> right. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's where they're strong. America's biggest export is marketing. Really, I mean, we gave the world the entertainment industry. Um, right. And I think that so to kind of combat our lack of contribution to the rest of the world, we also gave the world military, but that's arguable as to how effective that's been for the rest of the world. But I think that because of our lack of contribution uh, in other areas, we push our kids to, like, learn the math and the sciences, and we push them into standardized testing, and we push them into all these things, 
all the while we have some of the weakest educational systems in the world, and we push them into all these things, all the while most of the citizens in this country only speak one language. It's true. It's very true. <laughs> and it's just, so, and I think, you know, I think that we have to figure out what it is that we really need these kids to learn and come away with and what's going to make them the most productive members of society. Because to, to push a kid who's an auto mechanic into the math and the sciences, when I say push a kid who's an auto mechanic, what I'm saying is if a kid takes a particular interest in um, being an auto mechanic, how can we use his interest in being an auto mechanic to help him learn the math and the sciences, more so to help him want to learn more about the math and the sciences? Turn the whole teaching and learning system on its head. Now, now kids are actually interested in in learning. In actually learning. Not, right, right. So, I mean, that that's probably, I mean, you're a father now, too. So, th is that kind of influence how you want the education system to change? Absolutely. I mean, they're really, it, like, what is the standard? You know, they keep right. talking about standardized testing, but what is the standard? And who's the standard set by? Is it set right. by our desire to keep up with the rest of the world? Or is it set by, you know, is the standard set by the needs of this one community at this one school? You know, like, we have to, I think it's important for us to revisit the standard and how it helps or hinders us. And I think that no child is the same, no children, you know, I think our society as a whole, we learn differently now than we have especially in the past. Internet, yeah. Especially with the internet, with like gaming systems, with the way, I mean, I think that we operate on all levels of multi, uh, multiple intelligence. We always could. It's just that it wasn't always available to us. That it's, you know, for centuries, people just sat around a campfire and talked, and then we progressed to sitting around a radio and listening, and then the TV was born, so we got around the TV and watched. Now, all of that is happening at one time, and these kids, their attention span is shorter, mm -hmm. which literally affects the way that plays and musicals are being produced to, to complement yes. people's short attention span and to also keep people engaged by utilizing more stuff. It's amazing the color purple has lasted this long. I think it's a testament that people, no matter what, still love just a good story. Don't and the community of it, too. I and think. the community of it, definitely. You know, yeah. people don't want to be fooled. I think I, the human, human nature dictates that we love storytelling. We just yeah. love a good story. So what does unity mean to you, um, kind of drawn into that community aspect? Um, what does unity mean to you, and what does staying encouraged mean to you, and how do you personally stay encouraged? Um, you know, I stay encouraged when I see, uh, when I see people actively dealing with each other in the world. Um, you when know, you say that, what do you mean? Well, for example, you know, we have some of the most diverse audiences on Broadway that I've ever seen, and people who have done more shows than I have have seen. When they come in, they're all individual people with their own stories, and they have, you know, their, they have their preconceived notions based on the way somebody looks. But then by the end of the show, man, everybody's, like, crying and holding hands and holding each other, whether they know each other or not. And I think that that is an example of how we all want to be 
it's not that we should. I think we already have it in us to be that way. I think it's just a matter of us having a shared experience to be able to say, hey, you know, this is us. And so when they come to see our show, that is the shared experience. They see this nonviolent resistance through the character of Seeley happen before their eyes. And they, they all want to jump on stage and help her. They all want to jump on stage and tell her she's beautiful. They all want to jump on stage and sing with her. And that that's something that is intrinsically human. You know, we didn't force that. We did, that's not like an overall message that we're beating down the audience with a sledgehammer, you know. Like, for all intents and purposes, we leave morality out of it. We just let the story be told. We don't ask people to feel any type of way about it. How they feel is how they feel, but I think... It's amazing that everybody still, even in that, has a shared experience. Yeah, man. So that's encouraging because I know it's like we can do it. So anybody choosing hate, they're choosing that shit. It's not by mistake. It's not because of ignorance because there's all the information is out there at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nobody can say I treated him this way because I, I didn't know. Like, no, no, no. If you want to know anything, you can go on YouTube. Go, like, it's just if the information is out there. We all are privy and have access to the same information. What we do with that is our responsibility. For sure. So I know you have a show. So how do people contact you? Do you have um, a website or? Um, I don't have a website. website. I should, but I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. What are those handles? Mm. See, now you're talking to the wrong person. <laughs> oh, you don't know? You don't know that? On Facebook, um, you can find me at Isaiah's Lament. Mm. Or just under my name, Isaiah Johnson. Uh, Twitter. I don't know my Twitter handle. But I, could put I, I know it's very easy to find. And if you friend request me, I will accept. <laughs> awesome. And... How can people and where can people buy tickets for this beautiful show, The Color Purple, on Broadway? Uh, SmartTicksTKTS.com or The Box in Times Square or down lower Manhattan. You can get it from the website, ColorPurpleBroadway.com. You can come to The Box Office. We're at 242 West 45th Street, New York, New York. Uh, 1003, I think, is um, yeah, we're here. I will be here until November 13th, but the story will be here until forever, and it is available to you. Awesome. Isaiah Johnson, break legs tonight, and thank you so much for joining us, man. Really, thank really appreciate it. Thank you so much, it. Aaron. Appreciate it, man. Right. Thank you for inviting me. All right, take care. Peace. That's it for this episode of The Creation Ground. I'm your host, Aaron Lloyd. Be sure to check out our Instagram for future and previous guest info and check out our YouTube channel in the show notes below. Email us with any suggestions at thecreationgrounds at gmail.com. And if you got something out of this, I'd really appreciate if you spread the word and the love. Until next time, this is Aaron Lloyd telling you that the sky is the limit. Stay creative.